Peter. I'm one of the five pastors here and 129 members. If you have your Bibles, I hope you do. Turn with me to Isaiah chapter 9. Isaiah chapter 9. And the page number of the black hardcover book underneath the seat in front of you is 606. 606. 607. Thank you, Barbara. <coughs> 607. Isaiah chapter 9, verses 1 through 7. I'll read for us. Hear then the words of our living God. Nevertheless, the gloom of the distressed land will not be like that of the former times when he humbled the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali. But in the future, he will bring honor to the way of the sea, to the land east of the Jordan, and to Galilee of the nations. The people walking in darkness have seen a great light. A light has dawned on those living in the land of darkness. You have enlarged the nation and increased its joy. The people have rejoiced before you as they rejoice at harvest time and as they rejoice when dividing spoils. For you have shattered their oppressive yoke and the rod in their shoulders. The staff of their oppressor, just as you did on the day of Median. For every trampling boot of battle and the bloody garments of war will be burned as fuel for the fire. For a child we be, will be born for us. A son will be given to us. And the government will be on his shoulders. He will be named Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Eternal Father, Prince of Peace. The dominion will be vast, and its prosperity will never end. He will reign on the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish and sustain it with justice and righteousness from now on and forever. The zeal of the Lord of armies will accomplish this. This is the word of the Lord. May the word of Christ dwell richly among us. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. We pray that you would incline our hearts to your word. Open our eyes to your wondrous truths. Unite our hearts to fear your name. And satisfy us with your faithful love. We pray that you would help us to not to despair. Because Christ has been born for us. In Christ's name, amen. amen. I think it was uh, Thomas Edison who once said that failure is a mother of success. It's a helpful quote to rethink and reshape our views on failures. But let's be honest. We can endure a handful of failures, but when a handful of failures become multiple times, and when they become repeated failures, we become easily discouraged. 
Maybe you're one of those. You've never failed before in your life. But take this to the bank. You live long enough, failure is inevitable. But what's hard isn't merely looking at our failures. What's really difficult is our cynicism. How we view ourselves in light of our failures. You fail once, you shrug it off, thinking, ah, that was a one-off, due to my negligence. But you fail again, you can still shrug it off, thinking you're still awesome. But once one becomes two, then becomes multiple times, you may start to doubt yourself. We can easily question our abilities than ourselves. And then you begin to question your own competence. At the end of repeated failures, you are left to face that maybe you're not as awesome as you thought you were. The feelings of hopelessness and despair might start to kick in. And they might slowly choke you until you give up and throw your hands up in the air. Friends, failure is inevitable. Does that mean hopelessness and despair are inevitable? I'm sure that many of us have felt utter despair before and hopelessness. We need something beyond our ability to be consistently awesome. Being consistently awesome is tiring. Let me tell you that from my personal experience. <laughs> Being consistently awesome can seem glorious, but it is really tiring. Because it wears us down because we feel the pressure to perform so that we might be accepted. Friends, we need hope greater than our own competence. And that hope is what we will be reading about in Isaiah chapter 9, or what we have read in Isaiah chapter 9 verses 1 through 7. If you're taking notes, the main idea of today's text is this. Gloom to glory comes through the birth of a child. Gloom to glory comes through the birth of a child. Three reasons why gloom to glory. Three reasons why we don't have to despair today. First, because Jesus is the light who has dawned. First, because Jesus is the light who has dawned. Second, because Jesus ushers in victorious joy. Second, because Jesus ushers in victorious joy. And third, because Jesus is the promised Son. Before we dive into the first reason, let's zoom out a little bit and look at the text. If you look down with me to chapter 9, verses 1 through 7, verse 1 is the action, what God will do. There was gloom promised, that's not like the other times, but in the end, in the future, God will bring honor, that's what He will do, that's an action. Verses 2 through 7 are manner, how that will look. It's a description of gloom to glory. Now look down with me to verse 1. What is the very first word in CSB? It reads, nevertheless. Yes, nevertheless. Which means 
that the logic of today's text is somehow connected to chapter 8, which is the preceding chapter. The chapter that we're in today is chapter 9. It is a promise of God's deliverance. God has promised that God will deliver them. But think about it. If there's nothing to deliver from, there's no reason for a promise of deliverance. Chapter 9 is a promise of deliverance. That's why chapter 8 is a promise of God's judgment. Friends, if you don't consider yourself to be a Christian, I want to thank you for joining us. Our gatherings are absolutely long. It's two hours and sometimes two hours and a half. Here is something that you've often heard before, even if you're not a Christian. That God is love. God loves people. You've heard that before. And that is absolutely true. Yet what's also true is the fact that God brings judgment on sinners. If you don't confess Jesus as Lord and treasure, you, my friends, are going to end up in the eternal lake of fire. You might be questioning, how can that be if God is love? Well, love is exclusive. God is love, and that means God punishes and judges righteously those who deserve God's wrath. And those who deserve God's wrath are everyone in this room. Everybody. Because we've sinned against Him. We've rebelled against Him. We claim our own selves to be kings. I see that often in my kids and in myself. We don't get our ways. We throw a tantrum. I want my way right now. And we become the kings and queens of this universe, demanding our own timing and our desires. And when we've rebelled against Him, we deserve rightful punishment. And that's eternal hell, eternal lake of fire. But the good news, my friend, is the fact that God has sent His only Son to live the life that we couldn't live and die the death that we deserve to die. So we don't have to be in despair today because Christ was born for those who would repent and trust in Christ. Friends, if you're not a Christian here today, the good news is you can repent today. And God is calling you to repent from your sins and to turn to trust in Christ. Treasure Christ and He will forgive you of your sins. There is a promise of deliverance because there is a promise of judgment. Friends, you can be delivered from God's judgment by trusting in Christ. So if you're not a Christian, repent and trust in Christ. Now, chapter 8 is a promise of judgment. Chapter 9 is intricately tied to chapter 8 because of the word nevertheless. Look down with me to chapter 8, verses 21 through 22. 21 through 22, it reads, They will wander through the land, dejected and hungry. When they're famished, they will become enraged, and looking upward, they will curse their king and their God. They will look toward the earth and see only distress, darkness, and gloom of affliction, and they will be driven into thick darkness. Can you pause with me here and try to grasp the predicament of Israelites? Try to imagine how they must have felt. They're depressed. No matter where they turn, there is no food. They're living day by day, paycheck by paycheck. 
things are looking real dark and they're barely getting by. They think that they're in the dark tunnel and they're hoping and wishing that, that at the end of this dark tunnel, they'll see a great light, but there is no light. A day goes by, a week goes by, months go by, and years go by. There is no hope. And they're throwing their hands up in the air and questioning God. God, why have you abandoned me? But that questioning becomes bitterness. Now, they're throwing their fists up in the air and saying, God, I curse you. There is no hope. They're thinking God has abandoned them. Do you remember when, this is one of my favorite movies, Lion King? Scar and hyenas have taken up rule and reign over the promised land. What was the result and predicament of uh, the promised land? Or not the promised land, the pride land. <laughs> There's a similarity there though in my illustration. The land used to flourish. There was light in the land. But when hyenas and scar has taken up the land, there's only darkness. That was the predicament of the promised land and its people living under God's punishment and judgment. They must have felt distant from the Lord, cold-hearted towards the Lord. Church family, I wonder if you've ever felt that way. I wonder if you feel that way today, distanced from the Lord cold-hearted towards the Lord, abandoned by the Lord. But friends, you can take heart because in hopelessness, promise is given. In our despair, glorious promise is made. And Christians are promise-believing hopers. We hope in things not seen. We hope in the one who has made glorious promise when we are in despair. Parents, we break promises easily. But our Heavenly Father is unlike any of us who can't break his promises. And here comes the promise made when we are in our hopeless state. So chapter 8, Isaiah is saying judgment is coming. But in verse 1, chapter 9, it starts with nevertheless. What is the promise? The gloom of this distressed land will not be like that of former times when he humbled the land of Zebulun and land of Naphtali. But in the future, God will bring honor. What is the promise? Gloom will change to honor. In other translations, honor has been translated as made glorious or make glorious. In other words, gloom changes to glory. As I was reading this text though, you know what's so frustrating in my sinful flesh? As I was reading this text, what was so frustrating is the fact that I don't get to decide when gloom changes to glory. In our sinful flesh, we desire the promise to come true right now. We want to decide when. I want to be done with my indwelling sin right now. I'm sick and tired of dealing with my own sin and failing again and again. 
I want to be done with that particular sin right now. I want to be married right now. I don't want to be single anymore. I want to have kids right now. Or I want my kids to go away right now. That's not coming from my personal experience. I want my pains to go away right now. I want my broken relationships with my family and friends to be completely restored right now. I want to stop feeling this way, discouraged and in despair right now. I want my trial to go away right now. Brothers and sisters, we are not the king of this universe, and that's good for us. We don't get to decide the timing. God the king does, and that's good for us. We don't like the feeling of being humbled, but it's good for us when God gives it to us. So let's stop demanding glory now and trust that God will change our gloom to glory in his good time. Just as people of God have been waiting for Messiah, and 2,000 years ago, that Messiah, the promise of Messiah, had been fulfilled. So stop demanding glory now, but trust in God's glorious promise. Now, let's go into the first reason. Remember, we don't have to be in despair today because there are three reasons. First, Jesus is the light who has dawned. Jesus is the light who has dawned. Look with me to verse 2. It reads, the people walking in darkness have seen a great light. A light has dawned on those living in the land of darkness. A light has come on those who are walking in darkness. So let's, let's kind of unpack that phrase, walking in darkness. What does that look like? What are the characteristics of those who are walking in darkness? If, if you have your Bibles, turn with me to Isaiah chapter 1. We're going to be flipping through Isaiah chapters 1 through 7. So stay with me here. Isaiah chapter 1. We're trying to define characteristics of those who are walking in darkness. I'm going to be reading a chunk, chunk here, verses 2 through 15. Listen. Listen, heavens, and pay attention, earth. For Yahweh has spoken. I have raised children and brought them up, but they have rebelled against me. The ox knows its owner, and donkey its master, feeding trough. Trough. I, I don't know how to pronounce that. But Israel does not know. My people do not understand. Oh, sinful nation, people weigh down with iniquity. Boot of evildoers, depraved children. They have abandoned Yahweh. They have despised the Holy One of Israel. They have turned their backs on him. Why do you want more beatings? Why do you keep on rebelling? The whole head is hurt. Whole heart is sick. From the sole of the foot even to the head. No spot is uninjured. Wounds, welts, festering sores, not cleansed bandaged or soothed with oil. Your land is desolate. 
Your cities burn down. Foreigners devour your fields right in front of you. A desolation like a place demolished by foreigners. Daughter Zion is abandoned like a shelter in a vineyard. Like a shack in cucumber field. Like a besieged city. If the Lord of armies had not left us a few survivors, we would be like Sodom. We would resemble Gomorrah. Hear the word of Yahweh. You rulers of Sodom, listen to the instruction of our God, you people of Gomorrah. What are all your sacrifices to me? Asks the Lord. I've had enough of burnt offerings and rams and fat of well-fed cattle. I have no desire for the blood of bulls, lambs, or male goats. When you come to appear before me, who required this from you, this trampling of my courts? Stop bringing useless offerings. Your incense is detestable to me. New moons and Sabbaths, the calling of solemn assemblies. I cannot stand iniquity with the festival. I hate your new moons, prescribed festivals. They've become a burden to me. I'm tired of putting up with them. When you spread out your hands in prayer, I will refuse to look at you. Even if you offer countless prayers, I will not listen. Your hands are covered with blood. Turn with me to... uh, Chapter 3, verse 16. Chapter 3, verse 16 says, Yahweh also says, Because the daughters of Zion are haughty, walking with heads held high and seductive eyes, prancing along, jingling their ankle bracelets, the Lord will put scabs on the heads of the daughters of Zion, and the Lord will shave their foreheads bare. Chapter 5, verses 11 through 13. Woe to those who rise early in the morning in pursuit of beer, who linger into the evening inflamed by wine. Wine, they do not perceive the Lord's actions. They do not see the work of his hands. Therefore, my people will go into exile because they lack knowledge. Her dignitaries are starving and her masses are parched with thirst. Verse 20 of chapter 5. Woe to those who call evil good and good evil, who substitute darkness for light and light for darkness, who substitute bitter for sweet, sweet for bitter. Now lastly, chapter 8, verse 19 through 20. When they say to you, inquire of the mediums and the spiritists who chirp and mutter, shouldn't a people inquire of their God? Should they inquire of the dead behalf on behalf of the living? Go to God's instruction and testimony. If they don't speak according to this word, there will be no dawn for them. Now let's stop there. Think about what we read just right now in Isaiah chapters 1 through 8. What are the characteristics of those who are walking in darkness? They think they know God. They think they have knowledge. They think they're offering sacrifices to God. Yet, they're saying one thing with their mouth, but they're living in a certain way that dishonors God. They have traded evil for good and good for evil. 
they're deceiving themselves. They're not believing in the actual words of God and living according to the word. They've made up an image of God. It's a figment of their imagination. That's the characteristics of those who are walking in darkness. They turn to mediums and spiritists to get wisdom, to find direction of life, to solve the deepest problems of their lives. They don't turn to God's word. Even if they turn to God's word, they pick and choose what is right for them, which means they're making up an idol. Friends, you might think that you believe in God, and you do if you're a Christian, but we can easily make up a God in our own mind when we don't pay attention to God's word. God, as he did before, spoke to his people constantly. He didn't stop, and he was clear, but the years of his people have been shut off, rejected. They believed whatever they wanted to believe about God, rather than believing in the very words of God. God's word dictates who he is, not our mere fallen opinions. And God's people who are marked by the characteristics of listening to him stopped listening to him and began to listen to themselves and those worthless idols. Church family, Jesus is the light and listening to his words is important. So I wonder if you have your ears perked up whenever God's word is read here. I wonder if you functionally believe that God's word can and will give you life. I wonder if you functionally believe that not only our gatherings, but when we're scattered, that you believe that God's word can and will give you life. Church family, listening is not a worthless or less valuable act. You might think listening is not that important but listening to God's word is one of the key characteristics of God's people so when God's word is read here get your ears perked up and listen because something miraculous is happening right there then when God's word is being read children Asher listen up recognize that something special is happening when God's word is being read up here. It happens every time God's word is opened and read. So make sure you pay attention and listen carefully when someone is reading God's word up here. Make it your goal to stop whatever you're doing to listen and pay attention when God's word is being read. To anyone whose fight is within yourself, within your internal voice inside your head that's endlessly accusing you. If that's you, stop paying attention. Stop paying attention so much to your own words attacking you in your mind, doubting you, accusing you, and pointing finger at your shortcomings. Start paying attention to the light who has been given for us. Scottish pastor Robert Murray McShane 
McShane, has once famously said, quote, according to Jeremiah 17:9, the heart is deceitful above all things, desperately wicked. Who can know it? Learn much of the Lord Jesus. For every look at yourself, take 10 looks at Christ. He is altogether lovely. Such infinite majesty and yet such meekness and grace. All for sinners, even the chief. Live much in the smiles of God. Bask in his beams. Feel his all-seeing eye settled on you in love. Close quote. What a sweet quote from a wise and aged pastor to protect us from the trap of over-introspection with our own sins. So pay attention to the light rather than overly scrutinizing on your own shortcomings and failures and sins. So first reason why we ought not to despair is because Jesus is the light who has dawned. Second reason why is because Jesus ushers in victorious joy. Look down with me to verse 3. It says, you have enlarged the nation and increased its joy. People have rejoiced before you as they rejoice at harvest time and as they rejoice when dividing spoils. In other translations, it says that God has multiplied the nation. Now think about the word multiply. When does that appear in Genesis? Be fruitful and multiply. Yes, be fruitful and multiply. It's God's command to mankind to fill the earth with image bearers for the glory of God. The glory of God filling the earth as vast as the ocean. It also appears several chapters later in the same book, Genesis 17. God makes a covenant with Abraham and promises him that he will multiply him greatly. And then in the New Testament, after the formation of the church, God adds to their number in Acts. Those who are being saved And the joy of this nation, holy nation, is increasing day by day. Brothers and sisters, God increases our joy. What a great news. Our church isn't diminishing or stagnant in our joy, but increasing in our joy as we help each other follow and know Jesus. Our joy is ever increasing because of our identity as holy nation. Now in the following verses, God tells us how and why we ought to rejoice. How do we rejoice? In what way do we rejoice? Rejoicing at harvest time and rejoicing when dividing spoils. During harvest time, farmers are reaping what they have sown. They have worked hard for a season, and they were seeing their fruits come to fruition. Now, there is a sense of completeness or completion, a celebration during the harvest time. So people of God rejoice like those who rejoice during harvest time. And second way is rejoice as you would when dividing spoils. Now, when do you divide spoils? When the war is over. Now, we've, majority of us, if not all of us, have never gone to a battle, physically, that is. Not with your siblings, but in actual battles. (laughs) After the war has been completed and finished and won, 
spoils are divided. So again, there is a sense of completion, celebration, and victory. That's where we're at right now. Because Jesus has ushered in victorious joy, don't think about how you feel because of your present predicament or situations that's not working out as you want it to. But think about the reality according to what God's word says. We've won. There is victory because Jesus rose from the dead and he said he'll be coming back. And then we move on to two grounds for this increasing joy. Now, when you look at verse 4, verse 5, and verse 6, it all starts with the word for, which is otherwise, otherwise translated as because. People have rejoiced before you, verse 4, because, verse 5, because, verse 6, because. So there's three reasons, but I want to cover the first two reasons. The first two reasons, or the first reason why people have rejoiced is because God has liberated them. Look with me to verse 4. Because you have shattered their oppressive yoke, the rod on their shoulders, staff of their oppressor, just as you did on the day of Midian. Now, when you think about the words shattered, yoke, rod, oppressor, and staff, what book of the Bible kind of pops up into your mind? It is? Psalms, yes. Uh, Think about yoke. Think about oppression. Think about slavery. Exodus. God bringing his people out from the oppressive yoke that has been uh, put on his people by the Egyptians. And God has brought them out, miraculously redeemed them. That's a similar theme with uh, the phrase, just as you did on the day of Midian. What happened uh, to the Midianites? Well, in Judges 6 and 7, it talks about Gideon. God uses coward like Gideon, but in a miraculous way. Just as he's delivered his people from Egyptians miraculously, he also does that with his people against Midianites. Gideon brings 32,000 men for a battle, but God shrinks them down to a number of 300 because God wants to make a statement. I will get glory, not you. You think this is impossible. You even think it's impossible for 30, with 32,000 people. But with 300, you must think that it's impossible, but I will do it. And he did, just as he has delivered his people from Egyptians. So why should we rejoice? Well, first reason, because God has shattered their oppressive yoke in a miraculous way. Him bringing his people out from oppression is a miraculous act from the Lord. It's what he alone can do. And ultimately, we have been free from enslavement to sin, liberated from the curse of the law. Second reason is verse 5. Not only has he liberated his people from God's enemies, he also has promised that he will put a final end to conflict. Verse 5, it reads, Because every trampling boot of battle and the bloodied garments of war will be burned as fuel for the fire. The symbol behind the boot and garments being burned as a fuel for fire is a symbol of an end to war. It's a sign of victory and completion. 
Back in the day, military equipment were set on fire as a symbol of victory in a holy war. So these are two grounds for the joy of God's people. But the question is, can they be true without Christ? Can people of God be delivered and liberated from our enemy apart from Christ? Can we experience an end to conflict without and apart from Christ? No. These two grounds are actually grounded in more fundamental reality that a child will be given for God's people. Now, think about these reasons as not subsequent, but going deeper. For God is shattered. For every trampling boot of battle and bloody garments of war will be burned. Well, these are because a child would be born for us. The reason why Jesus can change our gloom to glory is because Jesus is the one who ushers in victorious joy. BBC, train your minds to look at the bigger picture. Fickle joy may be caused by our short-sightedness and narrow-mindedness. We're like little kids who can't look beyond parents' command to not to eat candy before they eat their meal. But when we look at our own situation, look at the bigger picture in light of Scripture, we can be confident and not be driven into despair. If you're not a Christian here, I wonder who you turn to when you find yourself in a conflict, is it your dad, mom, friends, counselor, therapist? And I wonder if they can give you the ultimate answer. Now, third and final reason why Jesus is the only one who can change our gloom to glory is because Jesus is the promised child who reverses the curse. Now, there are, like I said, uh, three conjunctions that start with the, or three sentences that start with the conjunction four. There are deeper reasons. And the last verse six is what I really want to kind of hunker down on because for a child will be born for us. Can God's people be truly liberated without this child being born for us? No. They're all pointing to verse six. The entirety of the text today is pointing to the promise of a child being born for us. We can and we should rejoice because a child has been born for us. And the government will be on his shoulders. There are, there are four names that are named here. Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Eternal Father, Prince of Peace. Wonderful Counselor is pointing to the fact that Jesus is infinitely wise. He's more wise than the wisest king that we know, we've known about, who is Solomon. And he can give wise counsel. We can approach him and he is infinitely wise and knowledgeable. The title Mighty God points to the fact that he is powerful and he is God himself, omnipotent. He will do what he wishes and he will accomplish it. And no one can thwart his plans. Eternal father, a brother has asked me why Jesus the son is considered eternal father. The answer, I'm not quite sure. But I know the commentaries that I've read have pointed to the fact that the reason why Jesus is coined or titled eternal father is because the eternal father points to the fact that Jesus is caring and loving. That's all I can give you. I'm not quite sure why it's eternal father. And lastly, Jesus is titled 
prince of peace bringing shalom, bringing restoration. Now, think about a curse coming upon the land and affecting everyone. When I was thinking about a curse coming to a land and affecting every inch of the land slowly or entirely, I was thinking about the movie Moana. I, I love movies, obviously you can tell. And in the movie Moana, entire land is affected because a jewel or ring, I, I'm not quite sure, is taken out. You can correct me. And that entire land is cursed and it's slowly dying. Well, that's true even in reality. There, there is a curse in the land and it's affected every inch of the land. Not only the land, but its subjects, its people, the entire creation. Rela the resident's relationship with the king is affected and relationship with each other is affected. The land is cursed. The question is, who will be able to undo this curse? And that's what the Bible is about. Who will be able to undo this curse? Is it Moses? Is it Adam? Is it David? Is it Solomon? Who is this promised child? And it points to the child being born for us 2,000 years ago. Born in a manger, humbled. The God-man, God who became man, who put on human nature for us, who became sin for us so that we might not be cursed. And the reversal of the curse happens through this son, bringing shalom, bringing peace. Think about the book of Kings and the uh, book of First and Second Samuel. Think about all the kings, the good kings and the evil kings. Whatever the case is, whether good or evil, they utterly fail because they die. And here comes an evil king and that evil king dies. It's pointing to the fact that the dominion of this child will bring prosperity to its land and its residence. That child, he will reign on the throne of David and over his kingdom. He will establish and sustain it with justice and righteousness. We live in the United States, so we have presidents, but when you think about history of having kings, a monarchy, and that when that king is occupied by an evil king, its subjects and people had to suffer brutally. Well, that is not the case with Jesus the king. When he took the kingship, dying on the cross, being raised again, ascending and coming back, his dominion being vast, but he established and sustains his kingdom with justice and righteousness from now on and forever. I've heard people talk about um, 
pastors talk about church uh, being in its dangerous state. We need more pastors. We need more young ones who will take up the torch. Because if they don't have uh, more young and faithful pastors and members, churches will die. What I want to tell you, no one can thwart God's plan. Because it's not our meticulous plan or intelligence that will carry out God's plan. Look down with me to the last verse of verse 7. Who will accomplish this or what will accomplish this? The zeal of the Yahweh of armies will accomplish this. Not our might, not our zeal. So brothers and sisters, you don't have to be in despair today, no matter your present predicament or situation, as you're fighting your indwelling sin, as you're perhaps even sick and tired of going into the same sin over and over again like a dog returning to its own vomit. We don't have to be in despair because the zeal of the Lord will accomplish what he wants to accomplish. Gloom to glory doesn't come through our meticulous planning. You and I will never have to be light itself, victorious ourselves, or reverse the curse without Christ. He does that and we're united to him. We can bank on the fact that you're not the Savior and I'm not the Savior. And praise God that you and I are not the Saviors. And praise God that he provided his son who is. Let us close with a word of prayer. Father, we thank you because we don't have to be in despair. We don't have to be in despair because you have made a promise when we were hopeless and in despair, walking in darkness. You have promised your son to come, and he did indeed come 2,000 years ago. He ascended to, the, to your right hand, and you said that he will be coming back. And we are eagerly awaiting for that day when he returns and makes everything right. So help us not to despair. Help us to trust and enjoy Christ today. In Jesus' name, amen.